Every Sabbath, when we meet, we pull out our English Bibles. A lot of us use the RSB. I happen to have the sacred scriptures, because this is the one I actually learned the Shema from. This is the American Standard Version. Um, The RSB is based on the original King James Version. Some of us use other translations. But every English translation has this challenge. How do you accurately represent a message that was given thousands of years ago in another language? How do you know that the English words you're reading are a good representation of that message? Translations like the King James Version take a more literal word-for-word translation. Other translations like the NIV uh, will we'll take a phrase or a sentence and then paraphrase it to make it easier for English speakers to understand. And so now part of that challenge is to find a balance between representing the individual meaning of the words and representing the meaning of the message. And I could demonstrate this by telling you about something I've been doing in my spare time. And you'll have to pay attention because I'm only going to say this once. I started a boat building business in my attic. Sales are through the roof. I told my son on the way here, I had my favorite one-liner that I was going to put into the message. And this just made it in this week. He's like, you can't put a joke in your message unless you can relate it back to what you're talking about. You can't just throw it in for fun. But um, there are a few things happening in this joke, and I'm going to use it as an example. First of all, you probably get that ridiculous visual of me building a boat up in my attic um, and then you get, the, you get this double meaning of the punchline, this phrase, sales are through the roof. But for you to understand why it's such a funny one-liner, at least to me, you have to be familiar with the English language. You have to understand, first of all, what I mean by boat. You have to know that boats have sails um, that use wind to propel them. Um, and then you, have, then you get that visual of these sails not fitting in my attic and busting through the roof, since there's nowhere else for them to go. Um, you have to understand what I mean by attic. Um, you may not even have an attic, but you know you generally understand they're at the top of the house, right underneath the roof. So you need to have a basic understanding of the meaning of these words. And then the tricky part is that punchline, because it's got a double meaning. So I could be literally talking about the sails of the boat sticking up to the roof, but the other meaning requires you to understand an idiom that we have in English. When I say the sails are through the roof, I could mean that I'm selling a lot of boats and business is doing well. Now consider your favorite Bible verse. It was written in a language other than English, probably Hebrew if it's from the Old Testament, maybe Aramaic, uh, maybe Greek if it's from the New Testament. Um, Can't say that with certainty. Um, When translators look at the scrolls and various translations of the Bible they have, they have to figure out how to accurately represent the meaning and the message in our language, which is English. And we'll see later on, as we look through a few of these Hebrew words, they often have multiple meanings. Translators have to ask, is this an idiom for a successful business, or are they literally saying the sails of the boat are going to the roof? Another challenge is that our language is changing over time, the English language. There are several words in the King James Version that are in English, but I still sometimes have to pull out a dictionary to understand them because we don't use them anymore. So a few years ago, I watched a series of videos from a YouTube channel called The Bible Project. In each video, they went word by word through two short verses in Deuteronomy referred to as the Shema. The point of these videos was to get a better understanding of what the original message of the Shema was to Israel. And today, I'd like to look at these same two verses and show you why it's important 
to understand the original intent of the message, and along the way, I'm going to highlight some of the challenges we face when we study an English translation. I'll just kind of pull them off to the side. I won't display them until the end. But the Shema may be the best-known piece of Scripture in Judaism because religious Jews recite it as a prayer every day, generally once in the morning, once in the evening. Sometimes they even do it more than that. There are different versions of the Shema, but I'm going to focus on the short version. This, is, this comes from Deuteronomy 6, and I'm going to read the first nine verses. So these are the commandments and statutes, statutes and ordinances that Yahweh your Elohim has instructed me to teach you to follow in the land that you're about to enter and possess, so that you and your children and grandchildren may fear Yahweh your Elohim all the days of your lives by keeping all his statutes and commandments that I give you. And so all your days may be prolonged. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, has promised you. And I've highlighted the two verses we're going to study today. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim, Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These are the words I'm commanding you today. These words I'm commanding you today are to be upon your hearts, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall speak of them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. And you see, um, Judaism has taken this command very literally. I mean, that's why they recite this as part of their morning prayer and their evening prayer. Tie them as reminders on your hands, verse 8, and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. I should mention um, that the Shema prayer that, that, that's common in, in Judaism actually includes other, other passages as well. And I think I have a slide for this. Let me just make sure. Okay, so yeah, here's the, com- the complete Shema. It includes other passages which um, would take a little bit longer to memorize. But actually, if you probably repeated all of these twice a day for about a month, you'd probably have them all memorized. So the, the first one is the one we're going to talk, talk about today. It's the command to love Yahweh and remember That's from Deuteronomy 6. Um, The second passage they recite is from Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21. This is where um, a a blessing and a curse are presented. And again, it it talks about the importance of remembering and teaching the Torah, just like we see here in Deuteronomy 6. Finally, um, they also recite Numbers 15, 37 to 41, which is the passage that mentions the tassels. Again, the whole point... I believe, of reciting this is to remind them how important it is to remember the law. And this, is, this also mentions something about avoiding um, chasing after your own lusts. So this is the complete Shema. We're not going to go through all these today. Um, instead, what we're going to focus um, maybe by the end, you'll have them memorized by heart for those who, who haven't done that yet. All right. We're going also to look into each of the words I have highlighted here. So the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So why um, should we care about the Hebrew? I feel like I've already kind of laid the found work for that, uh, foundation for that. But one reason is because we know that the Old Testament was first recorded in the Hebrew language. The people writing it down spoke Hebrew. The people receiving it spoke Hebrew. And then maybe... Aramaic, too. I mean, um, there could have been Aramaic-speaking people, too. And I'm not talking also about the... I'm not including the New Testament writings, which um, were presented to people who may have spoke Greek or even Latin um, or Aramaic at that time, too. But um, I, wanted, I wanted to talk about something really cool, and this is one of the first things that I put into this message because 
it, it took me way too late to realize this. It was probably about a year ago. I've been thinking about this message for a while. I wanted to look at the example of Psalm 119. Okay. So if you look at an English version of Psalm 119, many of you, many of you know that's like the longest chapter in the Bible, right? And in fact, is that right? Oh, yeah, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. Ellie's here, so I can, I can bounce things off of her. I don't, I don't know if Psalms is the longest book, and I just realized that. I think there's a book that's longer than Psalms. But anyway, Psalms 119, that's what we're talking about. I'm trying to show that there's some cool things in the Hebrew that we're missing um, in the English. If you look at the English version, you'll notice it's divided out into 22 sections. In the RSB, and most Bibles will have um, each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet listed there in each of the 22 sections. Maybe you've gone a step further and you've realized there's 176 verses, and maybe you've realized every one of those sections is, uh, has eight verses in it. So if you take eight verses, you multiply it by the 22 letters in the Bible, you get back up to 176. I've checked this math. It works out. Okay. Um, as I've suspected over time, like even a long time ago, uh, each one of these sections starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So I thought, you know what? Probably what David did is he went in and started each section with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But it actually is, is much cooler than that. Okay, so this is a slide that says, why check out the Hebrew? So at first, I wanted to say, you know, we're going to see what we're missing in English. But here, let me show you what happens in each one of these sections. Not only did he start each section with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, every single one of the verses in each of those sections starts with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's kind of cool. And there's stuff like this hidden all over the Bible. It's stuff we lose in our English translations. A um, couple other examples I'll throw out there. Again, there are dozens of of, of Verses like this, um, they might call them acrostics, actually, but maybe not. I shouldn't throw that out there. But other examples, Psalm 25, Psalm 34, those are both examples where, again, the Hebrew letters are used in sequence to start the verses of those chapters. You know, some speculate that um, the Psalms were written this way to help with memorization. You know, you just go down through the alphabet, just like maybe uh, we, ha- we would have rhymes Today, with, with our kids, with the kid books, you know, A, B, C, D, maybe, maybe it was to help them memorize these. Um, there's also a tradition that says that um, David did this so that he could teach Solomon how to write, write the Hebrew out. Of course, we don't have proof of that, but um, it's very possible, right? So if you ever take a Hebrew class, and I think we have one going on right now, right, um, every Friday, or is it, is it, should I keep that under wraps? I don't know. <laughs> But if you take a Hebrew class and you're learning the Hebrew letters and you want to see that Hebrew letter used in a word, you could pull out your interlinear and go to Psalm 119 and just go to the section where, um, you know, that Hebrew letter is found. And then you can find a bunch of examples where that Hebrew letter is used. Um, Of course, this presumes you don't have a concordance with you. Most people probably have a concordance before they have an interlinear. But everything's online, so just go online and look. So um, this is something we miss when we use our English translation. And then um, I want to revise my earlier statement about why we're looking into the Hebrew. Um, There we go. To understand the meaning of the original message. I've already said this. So let's get into the Shema. And we're going to start with the first word, which is here, O Israel, Shema. And I've got the definitions just listed here on the slide. Uh, Shema, and, and these were pulled from 
Strong's concordance or maybe Strong's exhaustive concordance, sometimes they, they differ a little bit, but it's to hear intelligently. It's not just to hear, but to hear intelligently, often with the impl- implication of attention, obedience, um, causatively to tell. And this is where the passage gets its name Shema, or hear. The meaning is to hear intelligently. So um, when this is being read to you or taught to you, it's, it requires you to process it mentally and then to take action. Uh, Shema is usually associated with something we do with our ears, which is why I think it's been translated as hear. Um, in Proverbs 20.12, the hearing ear and the seeing eye, Yahweh has made them both. The hearing ear there, that word hearing is Shema, comes from Shema. But the meaning obviously goes beyond the act of listening. It requires action and even obedience. In fact, um, if you look through the Bible, I could not find another another Hebrew word for obey. Anytime I saw the word obey, it was the word Shema was used there. And then I've got um, an example here from Genesis 22, 18. This is um, in regard to Abraham. This is the promise given to Abraham. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice, Shema. The translators could have said, and maybe some translations will do this, you have heard my voice, but obviously we understand that there's more to it than just Abraham hearing Yahweh speak to him. Yet Abraham actually took action. In Exodus 19.5, there we go. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. There's something interesting happening here. Shema does not just appear once. It's actually repeated for emphasis. So it's actually Shema, Shema, my voice. Obey indeed my voice. And sometimes you'll notice that in the Hebrew. That's something else we kind of lose in the English. Um, You'll notice some words are repeated for emphasis, and this is an example of that. Deuteronomy 11.28. See, today I am setting before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments, Shema the commandments of Yahweh your Elohim that I am giving you today, but a curse if you disobey, you don't Shema the commandments of Yahweh your Elohim and turn aside from the path I command you today by following other Elohim, which you have not known. So a, simple word like, so a simple word like Shema, which we translate as hear in the English, like hear in the Shema, carries a lot more meaning than simply registering the sound that's coming in your ears. And here it's a call to action. I was like thinking about Ellie sometimes. She's talking to me, even on the way here. Oh, I'm so sorry, hon. She was saying something to me. She's like, I don't think you're registering what I'm saying. And, and I really was... But um, she's making a distinction there between um, just having sound coming in your ear and actually registering something and responding. And I think that Shema kind of carries that weight. Um, And so um, there are consequences here. We see in Deuteronomy for not obeying if you do not Shema. And um, here I'll mention one of the challenges in translating Hebrew into English is that a single Hebrew word like Shema can have many meanings. And the context is very important. Sometimes we don't even have an English word that can fully represent the meaning of the Hebrew. Like if I, if I wanted to try to represent this in, in English without using the word obey or respond, I might be able to get pretty close if I use the tone, and maybe my kids are familiar with this, I need you to listen to me. 
you know, because that's almost like a call to action. It, it makes it very clear I'm expecting a response. I'm expecting some kind of action from what I say. Okay. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim. Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Um, the next word I wanted to look at is Yahweh. Now, we have a pretty good understanding I feel like a better understanding than those out in the world of, um, we understand the importance of this name, we understand it's the revealed name of the creator, but um, I didn't want to just brush over this, and I found something really interesting in this study, and maybe you've realized this too. Um, Back in Exodus 3, when Moses asks Yahweh, uh, what name should I present to the people when I go? Yahweh first presents Moses with um, a name, I am, or Ayah. And here it is in Exodus thirteen fourteen. Elohim said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am, or Eyeh, has sent me to you. The Hebrew um, has Eyeh there, but if you use the concordance, it actually points to um, the, same, the same word that Strong's lists as the root of Yahweh's name. Let me go back because I didn't point that out. On um, Yahweh, like if you look at the Strong's, they don't actually define Yahweh, but they will say it's from the root word Haya, which is um, trans, which is uh, defined as the self-existent or self-existent or eternal, and it also has this meaning of like coming to pass or becoming or just being. It's it's almost like a state of being, right? And so this word eh, yeah, I am is kind of I, I think it's very closely linked to the word Yahweh and. And Yahweh even goes on in verse 15. He says to Moses, say to the Israelites. So first he says, I am has sent me to you. But then he says, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So from the context, it seems to me that Yahweh gave a version of his name to Moses with I am, but clarified it with the actual version that his people should use. And when I say version, I mean these are words that have very similar meanings. Um, and it, it makes a little more sense, I think, for, for um, Moses to present Yahweh than a word that means I am, you know, when he's going to talk to the people. But um, I never realized this link between eh, yeah, I am, and then Yahweh um, until, until this study. So I think we all have a pretty good understanding of uh, Yahweh's name. But maybe, maybe it's a good point to step back and, and look at this overall message. Let me go back. So this overall message is to the Israelites. You've got to realize they, they have been stuck in Egypt for about, what, 400 years? Egypt was a polytheistic society. It means they, they had many deities. And this sounds like a message just to get Israel straightened out, like to get their mind in the right place. You know, Yahweh is our Elohim, Yahweh is one. It's almost like saying, all these other deities, you need to forget about them. Yahweh is our our deity, and there is only one of him. Here is what he expects of you. And then it goes on to talk about how you're supposed to love him with all your heart, your soul, um, and your strength. So let's continue on. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So um, this Hebrew word love is ahav, or sometimes it shows, it appears as ahava. 
And this is a very common and a very broad word. I, I think we've had messages that just are just on the word love, whether it's from the New Testament or the Old Testament. Um, but remember, we're trying to understand the message of the Shema. And, you know, love is part of the human experience that's kind of hard to explain to someone um, unless they've experienced it. And everyone's hopefully in this room has experienced love in one, one form or another. But there are many forms of love. Like, I could say, I love my wife. I could say, I love my son. And there are ways that I love them in the same way, but there are ways I love my wife that I would not love my son in. Um, I could say, I love coffee. And that doesn't hold nearly as much weight, right? All three of these mean different things, just as the word ahav does in the Bible. Um, Sometimes it describes a feeling of affection or admiration or something that makes you happy, just like love does in the English. I just love this music. Like, I really was, um, actually did enjoy the music selections today. And if I take one of these examples, like, I love my wife, a newlywed, where's Jason? He's not, he's not, well, anyway, wife who I've been with means something different when he says he loves his wife than I would say of my wife who I've been with for like 20 years, right? Okay. I'm confident that um, Shema here is not referring to just the feeling of love, but an action of love. And I think we'll understand this better as we explore uh, the tools we use to love Yahweh or the methods, you know, with our heart, with our soul, with our strength. We're going to understand this concept of love much better. Um, we also have, okay, so I thought, I thought it might actually help if I went to the Greek uh, translation of this verse. You know, I had this epiphany a few weeks ago, and I realized I'm not the only one who's had this. Like, when I started researching it, yeah, everyone goes to the Greek, you know, every, you know once in a while to try to understand what was written in the Hebrew. But I, w- I was going to the Septuagint because I happened to know that in the Greek, they don't just say love. They have like seven, seven or more different, different Greek words that they'll use to um, describe different types of love. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could take the Shema, I could go to the Greek, and then they would, they would use a word, you know, in the Septuagint that would make it so much more clear. Um, and so you might ask, oh, no, he was talking about Hebrew. Why is he bringing Greek into this? You might wonder why I'm, why I'm even mentioning the Greek, but... Um, this is kind of the epiphany I had, and I think it was during a Bible study, because I never realized this is, okay, so this is my, my crazy person sketch that I, that I made, because what I'm trying to show is, you know, we had the original text, and I'm just focused on the Old Testament. We had the original text, and through all these different translations, somehow we got to the point of our English Bible, right? And I know that the King James Version, for example, the RSB, um, when, they, when they translated the text for the KJV, they went back to multiple sources. I think most of it was the Masoretic text, which is a Hebrew version. But look at where that falls. That was hundreds of years after the Apostolic Assembly, all right? And I'm sure they were faithful with it, and I can talk about that in a minute. But they also referred to the Latin Vulgate, which was a Latin translation, which I think was adopted by the Catholic Church for a very long period of time. They also went back to the Greek translation, uh, you know, otherwise known as the Septuagint, And what I thought was so interesting about the Septuagint is this work, this translation work, was all done prior to the time that Yahshua was here on earth. It was done prior to the time of the Apostolic Assembly. And there's, I've seen proof that um, this was widely known um, in in Paul's time. And maybe Paul Paul probably used a version of the Septuagint 
um, in his studies. And there are um, references he makes to the Old Testament that really seem like they, they're coming from the Septuagint, right? And so, you know, I can't tell you exactly what, source, what sources they use to translate into the Septuagint. But what I can tell you is because of how old it is, um, the translators were much closer to the original Hebrew than we are today. I mean, we're separated by thousands of years. They were separated, well, I mean, they knew the Hebrew, they knew the Greek, they were able to translate it right there. So um, there are still problems with the Septuagint, right? Just like our English translation might have problems. But, um, you know, it's got this benefit of having, you know, being, being translated from, from history, from a long, long time ago, right? So I thought to myself, I was like, so let me look at different examples of love from my interlinear, or, or Ahava, right, and, and see how these various uh, words were used in the Greek. And um, when I say that Greek has different, different words for love, you probably know some of them. Like you know agape, right? You've heard of agape. Um, you've heard of uh, philia, which is like where we get the word Philadelphia. I think Elder Allen mentioned this recently. Uh, which is like brotherly love, right? And there's other, other forms of love that show. But, you know, I didn't, I don't think I put any of the scriptures in here. Okay, so what I basically found out, I'll get to the punchline, is that um, the, the, the Septuagint uses the word agape, and it uses the word agape in tons of other places, and it is a very broad meaning of the word love. So I went down this road, and it's still kind of a neat... Um, it's kind of a neat thing to do in your study. Like, if, you, if you're stuck on a Hebrew word, um, you know, it's just another reference that you have to figure out, you know, and these Greek translators, what were they thinking? You know, they were probably closer to the language. What were they thinking? Um, let me give you an example. In Esther 117, um, it's talking about King Ahasuerus. The king loved Esther more than any other women. And the uh, Septuagint there does not use agape, does not use philia. It uses eros, which is more of like a romantic love. Um, and then other examples are like in Genesis 22, where it's talking about the relationship between Abraham and Isaac. And Elohim said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, you know, go to the land of, uh, take your son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah. And this word is also agape. Um, and this is the same word used in Matthew 3, 17. And that, so that's another benefit. You can take... Um, you could, you could figure out what the Greek word is, and then you could take it over here to the New Testament and try to find other places where that Greek word was used, and maybe that gives you more insight into the meaning. But this is the same, same word that you used in Matthew 3, 17, where Yahweh's saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am pleased. Okay? Um, one more, let me see, do I say one more example? Yeah, I'll say one more example, and then I'll get back to the slides. 1 Samuel eighteen sixteen. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading them out to battle and back. So you're talking about the love a nation has for their king or their leader. And again, this was also in the, in the Septuagint translated as agape. So it still didn't really get me back to defining this in any clearer terms, because this word agape um, has a very broad meaning as well. So um, let me see here. In Deuteronomy 4.37... Because he loved your fathers, or Ahava, your fathers, he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power. So when Yahweh loves, he follows it up with action. And I could show you many other verses like this where he says, 
because I loved you, I did this. And he follows it up with action. Um, and I think that our love for Yahweh should prompt us to do the same. All right, so that's my takeaway from the study of love. <clears throat> that it's, it's, it really is um, an action that we have. So uh, the next one, Hero Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This uh, word heart is the Hebrew word um, lev or levav, um, and you can see there are, again, multiple meanings for this, inner man, mind, will, heart, and this is another word that's used a lot, has various meanings. Um, There are a lot of things attributed to the heart, a lot of attributes given to the heart, and even a lot of the same concepts we have today when we think of the heart um, figuratively. They all come from the Bible. For example, a broken heart. Psalm 34, 18. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We know that hearts don't literally break when something really bad emotionally happens to us. It can feel really horrible, but um, the heart is being used here to represent our emotional center. On the other hand, in 1 Samuel... um, The heart is also spoken of physically, like more literally. And it came to pass, this is 1 Samuel 25, 37. It came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. So it's obvious here that um, Nabal had some kind of blockage. It could have been a heart attack, which blocks the blood coming into your heart. It could have been a stroke, which blocks the blood going to your brain. But um, it's clear that Israel understood this heart, or lavav, was um, an organ of the body that's needed for life. Um, but I want to challenge, challenge this. In most of the scriptures where we see the English word heart, we could easily replace it with the word mind or brain. For example, 2 Samuel 7.3, Nathan says to the king, Go, do all that is in thy heart, for Yahweh is with thee. Some of the newer translations will even translate uh, lave as mind here. Go and do all that is in thy mind. This is referring to the desires that King David would have. Um, We know today that they don't physically, uh, these desires and thoughts don't physically come from our heart. It's really more our mind that um, where where you'd find some of these concepts. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Psalm 34, 7. Nope, 37.4, delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires and petitions of your heart. So where do your desires really originate? The heart may represent the origin of your desires, but we understand that our desires, preferences, and thoughts all originate in our mind, like I've already said, or the brain organ. And, and this is why I think they have uh, an alternate definition for levav that includes mind or will. So in the Septuagint, uh, they use the word cardia, which is very similar to heart. Usually that's heart. But it also has these same alternate uh, meanings of mind and will. And you might, you might hear cardia. You might hear, um, it's, you might say, hey, that's very similar to cardio or cardiovascular. And it is. It's because etymologically, it comes from this Greek word, uh, cardia. But the Bible, so here's, here's what's kind of strange about this. The Bible never once refers to lave as pumping blood. 
And so I began to question, like, why would it ever be translated as heart? And I found a clue in 2 Kings 9.24. And Yehu drew his bow with his full strength and smote Joram between his arms or shoulders, like that word could mean between the arms or between the shoulders, and the arrow went out at his heart, and he sunk down in his chariot. So now, you know, this kind of gives us a clue that... um, Whatever we're talking about here, whatever this word represents, it represents something that's between the shoulders. It could be the heart, for sure. Um, It could be other internal organs as well, as we'll see in a minute. Um, In preparing for this, I found an article in uh, Biblica, volume 74, and it's from 1993. So if you're interested, I I can give you the references and maybe even a copy of it. But the, the article is entitled, Brain and Nerve... In the biblical outlook. And the author brought up many of the points I'm discussing today. He was trying to make the point that maybe Lavav should really be translated as brain or nervous system. Um, other commentators have said perhaps this word is just meant to represent vital organs that we have as a whole, you know? So sometimes it could refer to the brain, sometimes it could refer to the physical blood pumping heart. But by the way, Uh, There is no word in the Hebrew Bible for brain. I mean, we have a word for skull. You're all familiar with Golgotha, uh, which comes from that Hebrew word for skull. But that is just a cage around the brain organ. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a word for for brain in the Hebrew. It just means we don't have a record of it in the Bible, right? Unless lavav was actually meant to include include that in in the definition. Um, One thing I've noticed... You know, we studied the book of Isaiah in our Bible study, our weekly Bible study at 11.30 a.m. Central Time on Sabbath. Um, we, went, we recently went through the book of Isaiah. That's 66 chapters, so you can imagine it took us over a year to get through it. But there were, there were Hebrew words in there that we keep finding as we, were, as we were studying through, and it was the only place that Hebrew word occurred. And then we realized, you know, these translators, if you look at the translations, they kind of vary a little bit. Like, this translation says this, and this translation says that. And it's like these translators had a real task to take one single instance of a Hebrew word and try to figure out from the context, or maybe try to figure out from other related words, or maybe look at the Aramaic and say, hey, this is kind of related to this Aramaic word. Here's how it should be defined. So if you've got several examples of that where a word only appears once in the Bible. It's not unlikely that there are other words in the Hebrew language that were spoken that we don't have written in the Bible. So maybe there is a word for brain. Maybe there's a word for obey. It's highly unlikely, though, and I, I think shema is the right word for that. Um, Isaiah 6.10, um, make the heart of this people sluggish. Again, that's la, lev or lavav. I'm, I didn't look that up to see exactly which form of heart it's or which form of heart it's using there, but make the heart of this people sluggish, dull their eyes, cl- dull their ears, close their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and their heart understand, and they turn and be healed. Well, both instances here where it's talking about the heart, um, you know, I mean, you can make the argument make the heart of this people sluggish. If you slow down their heart, maybe they won't be able to do physical things, uh, you know. <laughs> But what's more likely here is that this is a good example of where we really should be putting mind. Let, let the mind of this people be sluggish, let their, uh, um, lest they understand with their mind and they turn and be healed. 
So just another example here where um, you know we translators will put heart in there, but it's probably closer to like mind functions or what the brain organ is doing. Ultimately, what's the point? The um, lave or lavav is the center of everything you do. It's where your desires originate. It's where your understanding comes from. I could back that up with scripture. Um, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So it's obvious why Yahweh wants us to love him with all of our levav. Everything we do flows from it. Hero Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul. Soul is uh, defined as a, as a living being, a life, a self, a person, desire, passion, appetite, emotion. And I think Elder Randy's probably having flashbacks to a message he did a couple weeks ago. I think it was in January, maybe February. Um, and when you were doing that, I was like writing notes down. I was like thinking, how can I copy and paste some of his stuff into my message? Um, but he, he covered it, so I'm not going to go. We know that the word soul comes with like hundreds of years of Greek influence mixed with some maybe biblical concepts and, and um, Catholic concepts have kind of gotten in there too. Um, and so the waters seem to be really muddy when it comes to our English concept of a soul. And I bet if you ask 10 people on the street, what is a soul? You'd probably get like five different answers. Maybe you get 10 different answers. I don't know. Some might not even be able to say. And I had to think about this for a while. It's like, what is the common perception of a goal? And I was like thinking, what was my perception of the goal? Because I, a soul. I never really studied it out, you know, before, before coming to YRM. In movies and cartoons, a soul is portrayed as something that can be sold to the devil to make you more successful in this life. Um, then when you die, the devil comes and takes your soul back with him to be tormented forever. You've always, um, if you've, I don't know, even Looney Tunes probably had it, but you always um, saw that moment of panic on the person's face when they regret, oh no, why did I sell my soul to the devil? But, um, or, you know, some movies will portray the soul as, as something that comes, like if you've got unresolved drama in your life, when you die, your soul could return as a ghost to interact with the physical realm and maybe kind of sort things out. Um, some will say our soul is like an essence that continues on, um, even outside our bodies. Uh, someone online summed it up this way. We are all puppets. Our souls are the hands. Um, some people think that after your body dies, the soul is transferred into a new body. They call that reincarnation. Um, and then your soul continues its journey. Um, some might say our soul um, will be saved and be reunited with our bodies during resurrection and um, what I've noticed is it seems like there's um, a real blending there sometimes uh, of the concept of a soul and of a spirit. But the Hebrew word here, and did I say what it was? Nefesh. I didn't put it down. I should have put it down. Nefesh. Nefesh. It doesn't really mean any of that. And it's, it's really an injustice to have this nefesh being represented with our English word soul because of all the baggage that comes with it. So um, in short, as Elder Randy pointed out in great length, not great length. I didn't mean that as an insult. I just mean, you know, you, you really delved in and you got, you got to the heart of the matter. Um, there's a lot of scriptural evidence that shows that the Israelite understanding of nefesh is simply the physical body. And um, 
some scriptures that I looked up even have nephesh translated as body, not as soul. Um, so let me look at an example. So uh, Genesis 2-7, Yahweh Elohim formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being or a living nephesh. It's clear that Adam was not a soul. Um, Ooh, I'm missing some notes here. Okay, ad-libbing. It's clear that Adam was not a soul, but he became a soul. And it's the same thing that's applied to, um, to the animals, too. Uh, in Genesis 1.20, and this is one example. There's many examples. The, the, the beasts of the earth were referred to as nephesh. But I just thought it was kind of absurd to, to talk about the swarms of living creatures and the birds flying in the heaven. And, and living creatures there is living nephesh. So it's, it's a concept that not only applies to man, we don't have a nephesh, we are a nephesh, but it's also the same concept that applies to, um, to animals, the animal kingdom. Psalm 119, 175, let my soul live and it will praise you and let your judgments help me. Some newer translations will take this, um, what, what translation, this might be King James Version, but some translations will take this and say, let me live that I may praise you which goes back to that definition of self. So writers can use nephesh, like the writer of this psalm, David, can use nephesh to simply refer to themselves. Let my nephesh live. It also implies that the nephesh can be destroyed. And this is even confirmed in a couple places in the law, like the one here that I have in Numbers 31.19. It refers to a killed nephesh. And the law goes, you know, as for you, camp outside the camp for seven days. Whoever has killed a nephesh or a person, and whoever has touched anyone killed, purify yourself, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. So, um, again, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the body, something that can be destroyed. It's, it's um, so different than the concept we have of an everlasting soul. Uh, finally, in Numbers 11.6, um, but now our whole being, or nephesh, is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. I think I saw in the defini- one of the definitions was appetite, and maybe this kind of points to that. Our whole being, our nephesh, is dried up. But what this points to to me is that the nephesh is something physical. It's not metaphysical, like the soul. That's the concept of the soul that we get from, from the Greeks. So our nephesh is our body that holds the breath of life from Yahweh, and basically, to tie this back to the Shema, Yahweh wants us to love him with all our physical existence. Finally, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, this one was super interesting to me. Because if you look at the definition, um, it, doesn't even mention, um, it doesn't even mention strength. Uh, this, this is the Hebrew word ma'od, and I should have put that in there too, ma'od, um, muchness, force, abundance. Um, so strength is a very interesting choice here. We have another Hebrew word for strength that we could have used if the real intention was strength, um, you know, power. In all of the other scriptures, other than this one, um, the Hebrew word is, is used much differently. It's not translated as strength. It's translated as like very or greatly or exceedingly. And it's, it's used just to emphasize other words or intensify other words. Let me give you a couple examples. You'll see what I'm talking about. 
Genesis 1.31, Elohim saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, ma'od, good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Genesis 4.5, um, but he did not have respect. He did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Ma'od angry. Um, the next example provides maximum emphasis because it repeats ma'od, and the water prevailed more and more. And actually, I had trouble finding a translation that even represented this doubling of ma'od. Remember, before we had shema shema. Well, here we've got ma'od ma'od. And uh, I think this is the American Standard, but other translations don't even have this called out more and more. And the water prevailed, ma'od and ma'od, upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. This is like, goes way beyond just very. It's kind of like maximum effect here, right? Um, Here's another example where it's repeated, um, and it's in reference to Jacob's wealth. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous. I couldn't even find a translation that showed that this was repeated here. Exceedingly prosperous. It kind of combines them all together. Greatly prosperous, very prosperous. And had large flocks, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. So Jacob became ma'od, ma'od prosperous. So if you heard that, it was like you couldn't, it was like turning the scales up to 11. So maybe now you understand how this word usually works. But what do we do with it in the Shema where it appears by itself, with all your ma'od? Literally, that would be with all your very. You're supposed to love Yahweh with all your very. Or um, One, one um, lexicon had muchness, and that, that fits a little more. You're supposed to love Yahweh with all your muchness. The Septuagint translates this into the Greek uh, dunamis, which also means power and might. And that's probably why our English translations have the word strength today. Um, On the video that Bible Project published on YouTube, they said that there's even an Aramaic translation that translates this as wealth. And so I think they were trying to take an abstract concept like muchness and make it tangible. Love Yahweh with all your wealth. But could it mean that we're to love Yahweh with all the ways in which we are very? What does that even mean? (laughs) If we've been blessed with a great or ma'od, fill in the blank, whatever that is, shouldn't that all be applied to how we love Yahweh? Whether it's a talent, something we have that um, we're really good at, that we're putting our mind and our strength into. Maybe you're a carpenter, maybe you're a mechanic, maybe you're a musician, maybe you're an encourager, maybe you're an organizer. Whatever it is um, that you can do, it's something that we should use to love Yahweh. One commentator said that this may have been understood that we should love Yahweh with, with all your everything, right? It's just encompassing of everything that we, we do or think or, or feel. Um, rabbinic interpretation seems to be that it's not really your strength, but the result of your strength, the result of you putting your effort into something. So finally, we've gotten to the end where we can review all these words we've studied. We can see if it gives us a better understanding of the Shema. Um, here's, here's one version of it based on how I've seen these words used in other parts of the Bible, basically what I presented today. Um, and this, this kind of looks a lot like um, the Amplified Version. I don't know if you, anyone's had an um, Amplified Version of the Bible. My dad used to have one. And it'll do stuff like this. It'll have a word, and then in brackets, it'll kind of expound upon that word to give you a better understanding. So that's, that's basically the point here. 
So if we apply all the learnings, all the things we've looked at today, we're to hear or respond and obey, O Israel. Yahweh, the self-existent one, is our Elohim. Yahweh is one. And you shall love or long for and take action on behalf of Yahweh, just like he does for us when he loves us. We should long for and take action on behalf of Yahweh, your Elohim, with all your heart, that is, our desires, our thoughts, our understanding, with all your soul, your entire living being. You know, this, this shell that, I shouldn't say shell, because that goes back to the Greek thing with the container and the soul. Okay. With your entire living being and with all your strength, that is, with your muchness, everything that results from what you put your energy and thoughts into, that's what you should use to love Yahweh, with all of that. So um, before we go, <clears throat> I told you I was going to summarize some of the challenges of our English translation and give you some tools that you can use for study. Here are some of the challenges. Now, I didn't even talk about the idiom thing. You remember the first example I gave, sales going through the roof? That was kind of like a, an idiom. I didn't even talk about that. There are idioms in Hebrew, and sometimes you know, we have to rely on commentators or people familiar with that to explain what those mean. But here are some of the things that I've noticed as, as I was studying through this. Sometimes Hebrew, Hebrew nuance is lost in translation. For example, we don't, have these, we don't see these acrostics that we, um, like what we saw in Psalm 119 and in other, other passages. We don't understand the book names. You know what? I don't even think I mentioned uh, Ryan's sermon. He gave a sermon a couple weeks ago on, on Hebrew, the he- history of Hebrew. And um, he was talking about how the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, like, we have our English versions. We have our English names for those. But the Hebrew names come right from the first verse. So like Bereshit is uh, um, in the beginning, and that's Genesis 1.1. So that's the Hebrew name of that book. But we lose that because – so that's, that's an example of Hebrew nuance that's lost on us. We don't realize that they used to call these books just from like a phrase from the very first verse. Um, we miss out on alternate spellings of the same word um, like lev and levav. Um, we miss out on words that are re- uh, repeated, for example. We, we saw some words repeated today, and the English doesn't always carry that over. Um, some words, some Hebrew words have multiple meanings, and that causes a challenge because then you have to look at the context. You have to look at the context of the passage to figure out, okay, so this Hebrew word can mean heart or maybe it can mean mine or something else. Um, really, what does it mean here? Some Hebrew words have a meaning that cannot be fully represented by an English word. What was the example of that? Um, maybe it was Shema. Anyway, there, there are words in Hebrew that carry more of a punch than what we're able to represent with an English word. And like, we can look it up in a commentary, and a commentary can have a paragraph that explains what the actual meaning is in English so that we can understand it. Some Hebrew words are rare, and we have to rely more on context and other similar words to translate it. That's kind of what I was talking about when we were studying Isaiah. Thankfully, um, in this study about the Shema, all these words we looked at were very common. So we had tons of references to see how they're used in other passages and to get clues about how they should be uh, defined. But there are, there are Hebrew words that are rare in the, uh, the Bible, and so there's a, it's kind of tricky to look into those. And that's why I was kind of going to the Septuagint and in the past, in other studies, go into the Septuagint to kind of see what they did there. Um, and finally, some, some tools. Uh, the Strong's Hebrew Concordance, I think uh, most people understand what that is. That's just like a listing of all the words in the Bible. And it gives some examples of where they're found. And then usually at the end, there's a dictionary. 
And we've, we've taken that dictionary and we've put it in the back of the RSB. Um, the Brown Driver's Brig, which is a Hebrew lexicon, sometimes they go into a word and they dig down a little bit deeper than Strong's does. So you get a better definition and it gives some other like historical references that kind of support this translation. A Hebrew-English interlinear like the JPS Tanakh. Um, I know there are some brothers, brothers and sisters here who have a JPS Tanakh. Um, and then the Englishman's Concordance. Oh, excuse me. <coughs> so I've never seen a print version of this, but I've seen an online version of the Englishman's Concordance. And I like it to supplement the Strong's because what Englishmen's will do is they'll take every single form of that word, whether it's a plural version of this word or whether it's like got some prefix on it, and they'll show you everywhere in the Bible where that specific version of the word, you know, because the Strong's Concordance might have a few thousand definitions, but those words can appear in different ways in the Bible depending on whether it's plural or... Um, what are other things that could affect it? There's, you go to the Bible class and, or the Hebrew class and you'll learn all about that. But Englishmen's um, will kind of point those out. And, and so if you see a specific way this word is represented, you can see how it's represented in other verses. And, and you're probably thinking, oh, Randy, these sound great, but how much is this going to cost me? Because, <laughs> you know, some of these tools are kind of expensive. Um, I go to BibleHub.com and it has all this stuff. So that's kind of the punchline there on this slide. Uh, BibleHub.com, I just, for every Bible study, for every time I'm preparing something like this, I just kind of live out of BibleHub.com because everything's kind of linked together. Englishman's Concordance is next to the Strong's and Brown Driver Briggs is all on the same page. Anyway, um, BibleHub.com. <laughs> they don't sponsor me, by the way. <laughs> just, <laughs> I just really like it. So um, before we close, let me um, give you a lesson uh, from Yahshua. So in Mark 12, 28, now one of the scribes had come up and heard their debate. Noticing how well Yahshua had answered them, he asked him, so this is a scribe asking Yahshua, which commandment is the most important of all? And Yahshua replied straight from the Shema, this is the most important. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you notice Yahshua kind of expands here. Instead of having three aspects um, or tools or ways we love him, he's, he's provided a fourth. And maybe loving him with your mind and your strength is, is a way of expanding up, up, upon ma'od. But the second is this in verse 31. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Let me go to the next slide. And uh, Verse 32. Right, teacher, the scribe replied, you have stated correctly that Elohim is one and there is no, no other but him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength. And again, he's kind of paraphrasing what Yahshua even said, heart, understanding, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself, which is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. <clears throat> when Yahshua saw that the man had answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of Elohim. And shouldn't that be our goal? To get close to the kingdom? This scribe understood the importance of the message that it was more important to love Yahweh this way and to love our neighbor than it was to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this was even prior to Yahshua's sacrifice, you know, which kind of did away with the sacrificial system. So in summary, it starts with an understanding of the word. 
an understanding of texts like the Shema, but it also then has to be followed up with action, and that's what Yahweh requires. Thank you for your attention. I hope you'll take this to heart or to mind. (laughs) May Yahweh bless you.